Well, good morning. Bring you greetings this morning from Emmanuel Baptist Church. And on behalf of Emmanuel Baptist Church, I do want to tell you that we do love you as our sister church. Uh, we pray for you often. And we are very, very thankful for our partnership in the gospel. And I'm also thankful for this opportunity to worship with you this morning. I'm thankful for the worship that has already taken place, uh, the singing, the prayers, uh, the baptism. Uh, I'm very thankful for these means of grace and that I get to share in these things with you. And I'm also thankful that I had the opportunity to preach to you from God's holy word. Preaching is truly a great honor and a great privilege, but it is also a great responsibility. And it is a responsibility of such magnitude that I realize that I cannot discharge this duty rightly apart from the grace of God. And so I ask for your prayers this morning that I would preach as I ought to preach. At the same time, however, everything I just said concerning the preaching of the word is also true for those who hear the word. It is a great honor and privilege to hear the word of God preached. And it is a great responsibility to hear the word rightly. And there is only one way to hear the word of God rightly. And that is to respond to the word of God appropriately in faith and repentance. Your hearing of the word preached should lead to belief and to action. Another way to put that is, it should lead to love and obedience. That is to be a hearer and doer of the word and not hearers only. And so just as I cannot preach rightly without the grace of God, you cannot hear rightly apart from the grace of God. And so being aware of our mutual weakness and our mutual need for the grace of God, if we would preach and hear rightly, let us go to the Lord together and ask his blessings on this most important means of grace. Let's pray. Our Father and our most gracious God, we come to you this morning as a congregation, both preacher and hearer, and we confess that left to ourselves, we are weak. We are attempting to open your holy word and to have you speak to us from it through the activity of preaching and hearing. Lord, unless you bless, we realize that both our preaching and our hearing will be in vain. But Father, we know that you have chosen the foolishness of preaching to save and to sanctify your people. Lord, would you help me today as I preach? May I preach your word rightly. May what I say be true and according to a right understanding of your word. May it be preached in such a way that it is understandable and helpful for your people. May it point them to Christ. May it stir them up to love and to good works. And may your people, even now by the influence of the Holy Spirit, engage themselves fully into worshiping you by listening to your word preached. May you give them discerning ears. And may you give them hearts of flesh that are sensitive to what you are teaching us today. And may your people be built up in love towards you and in love towards one another. And all of this to the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. At this time, I would invite you to please take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Our text this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. But we're going to focus on the doctrine of good works 
particularly looking at verse number 24. And the title of today's sermon is Good Works, a Covenant Commitment. Let us read the word of our Lord together. We'll begin in verse number 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened, up, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Well, I want to begin by turning your focus to verse 23. And here in this verse, we have a call from God through the writer of Hebrews to do what? Well, he says in this verse to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, what does this exhortation mean? He says we are to hold fast. Well, where else do we see that phrase used in Scripture, this phrase of holding fast? Well, one place is way back in the book of Genesis, in chapter 2, verse 24. And the ESV translates that verse the following way. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so we see the phrase, hold fast, has the connotation of clinging on to or tenaciously holding on to something no matter what obstacles get in the way or no matter what forces try to separate you from that which you are holding on to. And so in Genesis, we see the call is for a man to hold fast to his wife. In Hebrews, we see that the call is for a man to hold fast to the confession of our hope. In other words, it is saying that we should hold fast or tenaciously cling on to the only hope of our salvation, which is the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the only Savior. In other words, we are to hold fast to Jesus. Now, there is another way in which these two verses are similar. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that this holding fast is a covenant commitment that is being spoken of. Marriage is a covenant, and thus the call for a man to hold fast to his wife is a call for the man to make a covenant commitment to his wife all the days of his life. Well, in Hebrews 10, verse 23, we also see a covenant commitment. Here, it is the believer's covenant commitment to the Lord by faith. And what covenant is the believer in with God? Well, it is the covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, what condition is given to man? The condition of faith. Which, of course, we understand that what makes the covenant of grace so, covenant of grace so gracious is that in this covenant, God even meets that condition for us. He gives us the very faith that we need. He gives us the very faith that he requires. But nevertheless, this is what we have in verse 23. <clears throat> the believer's covenant commitment is to hold fast to his, profess to his profession of faith without wavering. 
Furthermore, this phrase, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, could, could be rendered, let us possess our profession of faith continually. And so the idea is that we're not only called to possess faith as if it's a one-time thing, but to continually possess faith no matter what. And so, brothers and sisters, this is no easy task that we're being called to. In fact, I would argue that this is an impossible task if, we were, if it were just left up to our own strength. You see, this task is nothing less than the call to perseverance. Now, who in here would raise their hand and say, oh, I got that. I, I'm strong enough. I can, I can hold fast. I can persevere to the end. I would never deny my Lord. Sounds familiar, right? Remember Peter when he confidently said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And yet on that very night, he denied his Lord three times. And so this is a tall task that we're being called to do. We are, we are being commanded to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. We're being called to persevere to the end, it says. And we cannot do that in our own strength. But, brothers and sisters, take heart. Notice the passage where we see this commandment to persevere in the faith given. It's not a standalone commandment, but rather it comes in the context of three great faith preservers. And so we're called to persevere, but this call to perseverance is in the context of three great faith preservers. Notice the end of verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so the first great faith preserver that surrounds and undergirds this command to persevere in the faith is that God is faithful. And so we are able to hold fast unto Christ because we have confidence that he will hold fast to us. The one who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6 and so our confidence that we will hold fast is not in our own spiritual strength, but in the gracious covenant faithfulness of our God. Secondly, we have access into the very presence of God and a glorious encouragement to draw near. Draw near to what? It says to draw near to the holy places and to the great high priest, as it says in verses 19 through 21. Brothers and sisters, this is astounding to think about. That we who are sinful creatures are actually able and encouraged to draw near to the very holy presence of God because of what Christ has done. Notice verse 19 again. On what basis are we able to enter into the presence of God? On the very basis of the mediatorial work of Christ. It says it is by his blood. And then in verse 20, it is through his flesh. What does that remind you of? The Lord's Supper that we will observe later? In other words, it is by virtue of our union with Christ by faith that we have access to draw near into the very presence of God. And it is by virtue of our union with Christ that we receive the very blessings that come from the work of Christ. And it is those blessings that make us able to enter into his presence without fear of judgment. Look at verse 22. And so it's by virtue of our union with Christ, by faith we have hearts that are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. 
and bodies washed with pure water. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, in short, it means that the result of the saving work of Christ on our behalf is that we who have faith in Christ have been forgiven of our sins and we have been purified. That is, we have been granted the very righteousness of Christ. You see, we had two great problems keeping us out of the presence of God, out of the holy places. On the one hand, we were sinful. And on the other hand, we had no positive righteousness rendering us worthy to be in God's presence. But what Christ did in his perfect life and in his substitutionary death addresses both of those issues. He makes atonement for our sins by his death, thus addressing our sin issue. And his perfectly obedient life is credited to our account through faith, thus granting us the very perfect righteousness that we lacked and which is required for all who would approach into the holy places, that is, into the very presence of God. So for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. And so the first great faith preserver that we have is the covenant faithfulness of God, the very character of God. And the second, as we have seen, is the gospel truth itself, that we have been reconciled to God by the very very blood of Christ that was shed for us. So this is a great encouragement for us. Remember that the, the commandment is to hold fast, persevere to the end. We have these two great faith preservers and sustainers to encourage us, that God is faithful and that we have the gospel. We've been reconciled to God through Christ. But praise God, there is even more encouragement to help us as we seek to hold fast. Thirdly, we have one another to help us as we seek to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Notice the corporate nature of verses 24 and 25. It says that we are to consider who? One another. And then verse 25, we read that we should not neglect to meet together. And then we are again to encourage one another. And so we see this corporate language being used throughout this passage. And it has been said, and I believe rightly so, that the perseverance of the saints is a community project. And it is this concept in particular that I want to elaborate further on as we progress through this sermon. And so what I I just did was I highlighted a particular verse, verse 23, and then sought to show you how the exhortation of that verse to hold fast comes within a greater context. So it's not a standalone exhortation. It comes within a greater context. Now, I want to take a few minutes with you to look a, a bit more specifically at this greater context. I believe this passage that we have just read, verses 19 through 25, shows us the very nature of Christianity itself. Let me explain. First, let us see how this passage shows us the very nature of Christianity. So when seeking to understand the nature of Christianity, we must first ask the question, what makes a person a Christian? So if we're going to understand what Christianity is, we must first understand what is a a Christian. 
Well, what makes a person a Christian is not the same as what makes a person a member of any other religion. You see, you can be a, you can be a, a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist by simply saying you want to be a member of one of those religions and then following their system of beliefs and practices to one degree or another. So in all of those religions, it is simply an outward commitment that can be entered into entirely by the flesh. But that is not so with Christianity. A Christian is not a person who simply commits to following Christian beliefs and practices. A Christian is a person that has experienced actual and supernatural change. Now, I don't have time this morning to go into all the details of, of, of these things, but I want to speak of three great objective changes that take place in a person who is a Christian. First, a Christian is a person whose legal status with God has changed. That is, they have been justified, which means they are no longer guilty in the court of God. Their sins have been forgiven, and they have been credited with the very righteousness of Christ. This is a factual reality for the Christian. This does not happen in any other religion because all other religions are shams. To be a Christian is actually to be justified by the one true God. Secondly, a Christian is a person whose actual nature has been changed. When a sinner is born again, a new principle is placed within that person. In other words, a new heart is given to them. And because of this, a Christian actually has the ability now to will and to do that which is pleasing to God. They have become, as Paul says, a new creation. And therefore, the dominion of sin has been broken in their lives. Sin no longer has dominion over you if you are a Christian. This is an objective reality. You are a new creation if you are a Christian. And this is not true in any other religion. Third, a Christian is a person whose relational status with God has been changed. A Christian is someone who goes from being a child of Satan to being a child of God. A Christian has been adopted by God and thus can now cry out, Abba, Father. This is an objective reality. And it is this reality that I want to elaborate a little on because I think it's so critical uh, for us as we seek to understand our passage today. Now I want to mention two other passages quickly that highlight this reality of a Christian's relationship with God. That first passage is John chapter 17, verse number 3. And that verse states, And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what is this verse teaching us? Well, it is teaching us at least two critical truths. First, those who have eternal life are those that know the only true God. And of course, the word know here is much more than simply a, a head knowledge or simply knowing about the one true God. So the word, the word know there is being used as a relational word. It means that those who have a personal and loving and covenant relationship with God, those are the ones and those only who have eternal life. Secondly, this verse also teaches us that the very nature of this eternal life is to have this relationship with the one true God. 
And so it is not saying, well, if you know the one true God, then you can experience eternal life. It is saying that what comprises spiritual life or eternal life is union and communion with the one true God. The second passage is in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Here Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because so what, what do we learn in this passage? Well, it teaches us that what makes a person a disciple of Christ is not that they address Jesus as Lord or that they do many great works in the name of Jesus, but rather that they are known by Jesus. And of course, what is meant by the word known here or knew in this passage is not simply head knowledge or knowledge of facts. Jesus knew who these people were. He knew their works. The word knew is referring to the fact that these people never had a true personal covenant relationship with Jesus. And so we see that a Christian is described in Scripture as a person who knows, that is, has a personal covenant relationship with God. Whereas a lost person is described as someone who does not know, that is, who does not have a personal covenant relationship with God. And so I say all of that to say this. Our passage in Hebrews chapter 10 shows us that the nature of true Christianity is that a Christian is one who has fellowship with God. A Christian is one who has been reconciled to God and thus can enter into the holy places and draw near unto his God. So that's the first great truth that we see being taught to us in this passage is that, that the nature of Christianity is that we have fellowship with God. To be a Christian is, one who, is to be one who has fellowship with God. The second great reality that we see in our passage about the nature of Christianity is that a Christian is one who has fellowship with other Christians. When a person becomes a Christian, they are adopted into the family of God. And this means that not only is God our Father, but that all of God's people are now our people. We are brought into the fellowship with, it, with the whole family of God. Notice the communal language in this passage. Beginning in verse 19. It begins, brothers. Those who are also part of the family of God. My brothers and my sisters in Christ. So brothers. Then we see the pronoun since we. Verse 20. For us. Verse 21. And since we. Verse 22. Let us draw near. Verse 23. Let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider one another. And verse 25, meet together and encourage one another. And so I hope you have seen how the major thrust of this passage is that we have covenant fellowship with God by virtue of our union with Christ by faith, and likewise we have covenant fellowship with one another, that is the church, also by virtue of our union with Christ by faith. That, that's really Christianity 101, brothers and sisters. That, that's what Christianity is. To have fellowship with the one true God through Jesus Christ and have fellowship with his people. Thus, we as the covenant people of God gather together under our mutual confession and interest in the gospel 
and under the reality that we are united to one another by God. Now let us turn our focus to verse number 24. So I wanted to kind of set that, that foundation before we begin to, to unpack verse 24 and the exhortations contained therein. Verse 24 reads, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We would just quickly walk through this, this verse word by word to understand better what is being taught here. So the first phrase we see is, and let us. Well, again, the context is clear. The us is referring to the believers who have covenanted together to be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has direct reference to the Hebrew believers, probably located at that time in, in Italy. But by extension, it is applicable to all local churches that read this letter, including to us today. So it is referring to the local church. And this is something that's so interesting to me about, about the New Testament in particular. You cannot read this verse that we just read and make application to your life unless you are part of the local church. Think about that for a moment. So, so much of the New Testament doesn't even make sense outside of the context of covenant membership in a local church. Secondly, we see the, we see the phrase or the word consider. This word consider is a very strong word in the Greek. It literally means to consider attentively or to fix one's eyes or minds on its object. The same word is used earlier in Hebrews back in chapter 3 verse 1. If you would uh, flip back to chapter 3 and notice how that word is used. It reads, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, it says to consider Jesus. In other words, we are to, to consider attentively or to fix one's minds or gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so in chapter 3, verse 1, we are called to consider Jesus. Now, what are we called to consider in Hebrews 10, verse 24. Well, in the ESV it reads, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And as I studied the translation of this verse, I believe there's a better way to translate this verse. Uh, the ESV's translation makes the object of this consideration on how to stir up one another to love and good works. Whereas some of the older translations, such as the KJV, translate this verse in the following way. The KJV reads, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. And I believe that, that rendering of this verse fits the context better. And so the object of our consideration is actually to be our fellow Christians within the context of the local church. And so brothers and sisters, we are being called in verse 24 to consider one another. To consider one another attentively. To fix our minds on one another. This is what is expected between brothers and sisters in the church. So I ask you this question. Was that on your mind and on your heart this morning as you prepared to come to worship today? 
Were you considering, I'm, I'm going to church, I'm going to be meeting with my brothers and sisters. Were you considering just the needs of your own soul or were you considering the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Were you considering one another as you prepared yourself for worship? That's what we're being called to do here in this verse. We are being called to consider one another. And so there are to be two great objects that captivate our minds and our hearts. In Hebrews 3, 1, we read we should consider Jesus. And in Hebrews 10, 24, we should consider one another. So those are the two great objects that should captivate our minds and hearts. We should be considering Jesus and considering one another. Sounds a bit like the two great commandments, doesn't it? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's what we have here. Consider Jesus. Consider the Lord. Love the Lord. Consider one another. Love one another. That's what we have here. Brian Boardman puts it this way, and I think he does a good job of summarizing the teaching of this verse. He says, In our excessively self-centered culture, we might like to change the pronouns of the first two exhortations to me. Let me draw near. Let me hold fast. But the fact is we can't escape the application that the writer of Hebrews draws out from the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. And that application is radically community-oriented. He goes on to say, I would, I would suggest to you that the book of Hebrews emphasizes that the Christian life cannot be lived in isolation or separation. In fact, a so-called Christian life lived in isolation or separation is not a Christian life at all. Christian life is to be lived under the gospel, in community with one another. In other words, to consider Jesus is to consider one another, end quote. And I give a hearty amen to that quote. That, that, that is Christianity 101. That's, that's what Christianity is. To love the Lord your God. To love Christ. And, and because you love Christ, you love his people. Okay, so we have seen that we are to consider one another. But we are to consider one another with a purpose in mind. Now, what is that purpose? Well, our verse tells us that this purpose is to stir up one another to love and good works. And so this phrase, stir up, what does this phrase mean? Well, actually the Greek word that is translated is the word paroxysmos. And this is where we get that often used English word paroxysm. Now, have you had a paroxysm this week? Well, you, you don't know, do you? You've got to know the definition first. So, so what is a paroxysm? Well, a paroxysm is an outburst of motivation or action and this word is actually only found in the, in the new testament in one other place it is found in acts chapter 15 39 where it says that there arose a sharp disagreement between paul and barnabas and so in hebrews it translates it as stir up and in acts it is translated as sharp disagreement and so what does the greek word mean well the word means to incite a change in motivation and action. And so once again, the word that is used here is a strong word. It is a, an aggressive word. We are exhorted here to, to stir up or to incite or to provoke one another to a change in our motivation and in our actions. 
In other words, we are to so love one another that we should make it our aim to stir one another up to change our motivation and our actions. Well, the next phrase in this verse is where we see what that motivation and action are to be. The motivation, of course, is love. We are to stir one another up in such a way that our hearts increase or change in love. And this motivation of love is to go past just being a good intention. It is to result in actual good works. And so this holy motivation is to lead to holy action. And so now we finally get to the point in the sermon where we will address the doctrine of good works. But I thought it necessary to show you how the context of this passage before us, um, it, really, it really sets the, the, the framework from which the, this doctrine of good works is built. The, doc- the doctrine of good works, like any other theological head of doctrine, is not an isolated doctrine, but rather it is built upon and necessarily flows from the foundational truths of the Christian faith that we've already seen so far this morning. So, what is the doctrine of good works? Well, before we define good works, I think it is important to just quickly mention the necessity of good works. As we will see a little later when we look at our confession, good works are not optional. Good works are the true fruit of a true saving faith. Jesus says that every tree that does not bear good, that does not bear good fruit is to be cut down and thrown into the fire. James says that faith without works is dead. Paul says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so just as the Bible knows nothing of a churchless Christianity, the Bible knows nothing of a Christianity devoid of good works. And so if you are a Christian, you will be engaged in good works. And thus it follows that if you are not engaged in good works, then you are not a Christian. And so we see the necessity of good works. If you are not engaged in good works, you will be cut down and thrown into the fire and burned. And so this is not a light matter that we're dealing with. Good works are of absolute necessity in the Christian life. Now, let us define what good works are. But this time I would ask if you would turn to the back of your Trinity hymnal and notice page 678. And there you will find chapter 16 titled, Of Good Works. And if you would please notice paragraph 1. Here it gives a very brief but needed definition of good works. It says, Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as without warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal, or upon any pretense of good intentions. In other words, for something to be a good work, it must be that which God has commanded to be done in his word. In other words, a good work is a work that is in in agreement with the revealed will of God 
for our lives. But is that all that is required for a work to be a good work? Well, in one sense, yes. But in another sense, we need to make sure that we recognize that there is a difference in outwardly keeping the commandments of God and truly keeping the commandments of God. For example, the Pharisees, they were known for their meticulous keeping of the law. And yet, their hearts were exceedingly wicked. Their fruit was bad fruit. Their works were not good works, even though they, in a sense, kept the law outwardly. So what must be present for our keeping of God's commandments to be good works? Notice one chapter over in Hebrews 11. Verse 6. There it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Paul in Romans chapter 14 says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so we see here that in order for any good work to be done, it must be done in faith. It must proceed from a heart of faith that believes in God and further that believes the promises of God. But there is still more that must be present for a work to be considered a good work. We've already saw it in our text. What is the motivation that must precede the action of good works? That motivation is love. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 3 I think says it best. There of course it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So here we see in this passage, this person is doing great things, doing good things, things that are in outward keeping with the commandments of God. And they're doing those things in faith, and yet they have not love. And so we have seen that for a good work to be truly a good work, it must have three necessary components. It's a a three-legged stool, if you will. And we all know what happens to a three-legged stool if you take one of the legs away. It falls over, right? Okay. So for a, a work to be truly a good work, it must have all three of these legs, all three of these components. First, it must be according to the revealed will of God. Secondly, it must proceed from a heart of faith. And thirdly, it must be motivated by a heart of love towards God and towards one another. And so we've briefly defined what a good work is, but I want to to quickly take the time to show show what good works do not accomplish. Notice paragraph 5 in the confession on page 678 again. And notice the first line. It says, We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God. And so here we see that our good works are not the basis of our salvation, but rather they are the result of our salvation. 
Notice paragraph 2. It says here that these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And so the order is clear. Salvation and then good works. And so we are created anew in Christ for good works that we should walk in them. And that is so important for us to firmly grasp. We do not do good works to gain a right standing with God. I've taught in, in the, the setting of, of the Addiction Recovery Center. I've taught uh, youth Bible studies. And that is a very hard truth to drill through someone's thick skull. You can, you can lay out the gospel to somebody and then at the end tell them, so what must you do to go to heaven? And they'll say, well, I need to do good or do better, try harder. So it's so important that we grasp this reality that the order is not do good works and then we're saved, but we're saved and that leads to our good works. And so we do not do good works to gain a right standing with God. That is anti-gospel or anti-Christian. And that goes for the unbeliever and the believer alike. I'm sure many of you have sinned and felt ashamed for your sin and felt unworthy to enter into the presence of God. And the inclination of your heart in that moment was to do what? Many times it is to, let me go do some good works. Let me go do some good things. Let, let me go do something that makes me feel better so that I can then come into the presence of God. Be on guard against such thinking. In Scripture, the indicative always precedes the imperative. When you sin, you need the gospel. You need a fresh understanding that the work of Christ on your behalf, they, that, that, it, that it is more than sufficient to secure your standing before God. And it is only from a heart that is rested and gloried in the finished work of Christ that is sufficiently prepared to go and to do good works for the glory of Christ. That's extremely important. I'll, I'll repeat that again. It is only from a heart that is rested and gloried in the finished work of Christ that is sufficiently prepared to go and do good work to the glory of Christ. And so the order is clear. The gospel first. Being reconciled to God first through, through the work of Christ Jesus. And then go and do doing good works as a result of that. So we have seen what our good works do not accomplish. They do not merit or accomplish our salvation. Christ accomplishes our salvation. But now let us look at what good works do accomplish. In other words, let us answer the question, why should we stir one another up to good works? Well, our confession of faith, once again, is helpful in answering this question. If you would notice, once again, paragraph 2. And we'll take the time to read this paragraph. And as I read this paragraph, I want you to, to notice seven benefits that result from the practicing of good works. Paragraph 2 reads, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers, and this is what, this is what it accomplishes, Manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, 
Stop the mouths of the adversaries and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. And so I want to just walk through these seven, these seven realities that our good works accomplish. Um, I have scripture references for all of these, but for time's sake, I will not go to each of those scriptures. First, to manifest their thankfulness. The practice of good works is one of the chief ways whereby we prove that we are truly thankful for the saving grace of God. The one who has been forgiven much does what? Loves much. And this love results in being rich in good works. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, and I'm sure we all made statements that we were thankful, and rightly so. But would you manifest that thankfulness? Then do good works. Commit yourself to doing good work. That is, that is one of the chief ways to manifest that thankfulness. Secondly, doing good works strengthens our assurance. Brothers and sisters, would you have your assurance strengthened? Then be faithful to do good works unto one another. If you would, in your confession, once again, flip over to chapter 18. On the, on the uh, chapter on the doctrine of assurance, and notice paragraph 3. In, in that paragraph, you will notice that it says that it is our duty to seek assurance. And it lists out reasons for doing so. It states that our hearts may be enlarged in three ways, if you notice in paragraph 3. Picking up in the middle of the paragraph, it says, And therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make their calling and election sure. Why? That thereby his heart may be enlarged in what three ways? First, in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in love and thankfulness to God. Thirdly, in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, a.k.a. good works. And so, here we see a, a wonderful relationship between good works and assurance. On the one hand, as we commit ourselves to good work, it strengthens our assurance. And on the other hand, as we gain assurance, we are strengthened in good works. And so, dear ones, commit yourself to good works. It is good for your soul. Thirdly, we see that the practicing of good works edifies the brethren. And this ought to be a great motivation for you to do good works. When you love and do good, one, do good unto one another, it builds up your brothers and sisters in the faith. In simple terms, you're doing good unto one another is helpful. And so do you love one another? Well, if you love one another, then do good works unto one another. Fourthly, we see that the practicing of, practicing of good works adorns the profession of the gospel. Now, this one ought to be a great motivation to us. You see, brothers and sisters, our doing good unto one another is not only helpful within the, within the context of our local church, but it is also a great means of evangelism as well. Jesus said that the world will know that you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. Well, can the world see your love for one another apart from you doing good works unto one another? Of course it can't. 
You can say all day that you love one another, but the world can't see that. That's invisible. But the world can see you doing good unto one another. And thereby that adorns your profession of the gospel. And it is a great means by which we evangelize the lost. And so if the world would know that you are disciples of Christ, then you must be engaged in doing good unto one another. And so commit yourself to outdo one another in doing good and showing love for the sake of the gospel. A fifth benefit of doing good works is it stops the mouths of the adversaries. Now this motivation is closely associated with the previous one. We all know this to be true. The enemies of Christ are constantly looking for ammunition to cast aspersion on Christ and his church. The evil one, Satan, is an accuser of the brethren and the disciples of Satan are likewise committed to finding fault within the church. And so when you do good works, you stop the mouths of the adversaries. I'll read 1 Peter 2, verses 12 and 15 to illustrate this. 1 Peter 2, 12 reads, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so the fifth benefit of doing good works, it stops the mouths of the adversaries. The sixth benefit is that it glorifies God. Our good works bring glory to God. And is there really any other motivation needed to do good works? If that was the only motivation it gave, that would be enough. That when we do good works, it brings glory to our Father in heaven. And so do you desire to see God receive glory? Well, then do good works. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The seventh benefit that it mentions in this paragraph is that the end of such good works is eternal life. Because good works are the proof of a true and lively faith, we can have great confidence that the end or telos of a life committed to good works is eternal life. Now, it is not saying that our good works merit this eternal life, but rather it is the necessary proof or justification of our faith that saves. And so we enter into eternal life by faith. We are justified by faith alone. But our good work justifies or proves our faith. And so, as our confession states in chapter 11, paragraph 2 on justification, it says, Faith, thus resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. So we're saved, we're justified by faith alone. Yet, this faith is not alone in the person justified. But it is ever accompanied with all other, all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. And so the end of a life committed to good works for the glory of God by a person who's been reconciled to God through Christ Jesus is eternal life. And so if you would inherit eternal life, then do good works. Now I want to add an eighth aspect here that is not mentioned in the confession, at least not explicitly. 
We've talked much at the beginning of the sermon about how fellowship or communion with God is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Well, we must realize that, our, that in our communion with God, we actually partake in the very life of God. Now, this kind of language may seem strange to our ears, but, but this was common language to our Puritan forefathers. For example, we speak of the communicable attributes of God. Now, now what does that mean? Well, it means that God has certain attributes that he shares or communicates with his people. For example, our God is a good God. He does good unto all men and especially unto the household of faith, especially to his covenant people. And so we likewise are to do good unto all men and especially unto the household of faith. And so this means that when we engage in good works, we are communing with God in such a way that we actually partake in the very life of God. In other words, as we grow in good works, we are being conformed into the image of Christ. And as we are conformed to the image of Christ, we grow in good works. And so my question to you is this. Are you approaching good works as a means by which you can fellowship or commune with the one true God? Begin to think in those ways as you seek to render obedience to God and to do good unto your neighbor. And as you begin to think in that way, you will understand that it is no small thing to do a good work. It is not a small thing to do a good work. It is, it is a result of the very grace of God. So think in those ways as you seek to do good unto your neighbor. Well, at this time, I want to make a couple of points of application um, and then bring this to a conclusion. The first point of application that I would make for us is this. We have a duty to stir up one another unto love and good works. And that this duty is a reciprocal duty. So first, our duty is to stir up. We have the duty to consider one another so as to stir them up to love and good works. And I asked a question earlier today, when you were preparing your hearts to come to worship, did you have in your mind your duty to stir up one another to love and good works? This ought to be on our minds constantly. We, we all know what it's like to, to spend time with a brother or sister, a godly brother or sister, and that after we leave from their presence, we are stirred up in our love for God and our love for others. We're stirred up in our commitment to do good unto people. We all know what that's like. We all know those brothers and sisters that, mean, that, that have done that for us. It is our duty to be that kind of person. It is our duty to be that kind of Christian, that when other Christians come and spend time with you and fellowship with you, that you stir them up to love and to good works. And so the first point is that we have a duty to do this. Secondly, this duty is reciprocal. Not only do you have a duty to stir up others, but you also must be stirred up. And so I'll ask the opposite question. When you prepared to come to worship this morning, did you have in your mind your duty to be stirred up to love and good works? Are you consciously and, and purposely surrounding yourself with brothers and sisters that stir you up to serve Christ and his church better. You see, 
Brothers and sisters, this is one of the chief ways in which the fellowship of the saints is a means of grace for the people of God. God has given the fellowship of the saints to be a means by which we are, we are built up in our faith and, and grown in grace. And so we have both the privilege and the duty of attending to this precious means of grace. Second point of application. We have established that we ought to, we, that we ought to be engaging in good works and we ought to be stirring one another up unto good works. But you might be thinking, how can we do this? Well, I want to give you three ways in which we can do this. First, the first way is very simple but yet profound. Would you see Trinity Reformed Baptist Church being built up in love towards one another and see the people here abounding in good works for the glory of God? We'll start very simply by doing good works towards someone else in the congregation. In other words, use your example. If you would see this church built up in love and good works, then do good works. And as people see you doing good works, they will be encouraged themselves to engage in good works. And so the first way is very simple, by your example. Second way is to meet together. Notice verse 25 of our passage. Here the writer to the Hebrews shows once again a very simple yet profound way in which we can stir up one another unto love and good works. He says, don't neglect to meet together. And so one of the best ways you can see the church growing in good works is this. Very simple. Come to church. Your presence when the body of Christ meets is more valuable than you realize. And so brothers and sisters, consider one another. Again, come to church. This is a commandment from God, but it is also a precious means by which you can love and help one another to grow in grace and persevere to the end. Third, notice again in verse 25. Here it says that we are to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day draw near. And so we stir up one another by our example. We stir up one another by our very presence. And we stir up one another by encouraging one another with the truths and promises of the words of God. So what can we say to one another to stir them up to love and good works? Well, think of the passage that this exhortation is given in, and that will give you everything you need to know about or, or to know on how to encourage one another. First, we encourage one another with the gospel. We encourage one another with the reality that we can enter in to the holy places by the very blood of Christ. And so encourage one another with that truth. We, we made the, the mention, or we, we stated earlier that it is a heart that is resting in the finished work of Christ that is, that, is, that is the only heart that is rightly prepared to go and do good works. And so encourage one another in, with the finished work of Christ. Point them to Christ. Point them to what he has done and what he has accomplished through his perfect life and perfect sacrifice. Secondly, we are to draw near. And so we are to encourage one another to draw near. In other words, we are to pray with one another and to do so often. We have this great privilege to be able to draw near unto God by prayer. So one of the best ways you can encourage one another to love and good works is to pray with one another. Thirdly, we are to hold fast. So we are 
to encourage one another to continue to hold fast to the confession of their faith, reminding them that God is faithful and that he will complete the good work that he has begun. So again, remind them of the, of the truth of the gospel. And then fourthly, we are to consider one another. And so we are to, to remind one another that we love each other. This is a very simple thing. But we ought to be telling each other that we love each other on a very regular basis. We ought to be considering one another and encouraging one another in that reality. And now let us bring this to a conclusion. We have seen that authentic Christianity is comprised of being in covenant fellowship with God and in covenant fellowship with one another in the church. We have seen that because we are in covenant fellowship with one another, we are to love and do good works unto one another and also to stir one another up unto the same. And so I will close with this. Do you believe that these following realities that I'm going to state are worthy to, are worthy to be pursued for the good of Trinity Reformed Baptist Church? Those realities are as follows. That we would manifest our thankfulness for the saving grace of God. That we would strengthen our assurance of salvation. That we would edify the brethren. That we would adorn the gospel. That we would stop the mouths of the adversaries. That we would glorify God. That we would receive eternal life. And that we would partake in the very life of God himself. Well, if you love God and love one another, then you will desire that these be realities in your life and in the life of everyone here. And if this is your desire, then I urge you to live out your covenant promises to love one another and to do good works unto one another to the glory of Christ Jesus. But remember, you are not in this alone. We have our faithful God and we have one another. And so let us now draw near together to the throne of grace to find help to do this very thing. Let us pray. Holy Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for the precious truths contained therein. Father, we have seen that what it means to be a Christian is to have fellowship with you. To be able to draw near into your presence by the very blood of Christ. Father, we have also seen that what it means to be a Christian is to be brought into a covenant fellowship with other Christians. In the context of the local church. Lord, we thank you for your church. Father, we thank you for those brothers and sisters that we are covenanted, covenanted together with. Lord, forgive us for taking, for, for taking them for granted. Forgive us for not loving them as we ought to. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us much grace to do much good unto one another. Grow us in love. Grow us in faithfulness. Grow us in the doing of good works. And may this be to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. And may it be to the good of your people here at Trinity. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.